When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Today's episode of Think Again is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. It's an incredible video learning service that gives you unlimited access at any time, on any device, to lectures on just about anything that baffles or fascinates you, from cooking to finance to the ancient Etruscans, Right now, Think Again listeners can stream Neil deGrasse Tyson's The Inexplicable Universe, which demystified theoretical physics for me, and hundreds of other eye-opening courses for a full month absolutely free. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers around. On the Think Again podcast, we leave our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with unexpected conversation starters from Big Think's interview archives, ideas we didn't come here prepared to discuss. I'm very, very excited today to be joined by Michael Puitt. He's a Harvard professor of Chinese history and religion who teaches one of the university's most popular undergraduate courses. It's called Classical Chinese Ethical and Political Theory, and he claims that the ideas in it can change your life forever. And in his new book, The Path, co-authored with Christine Grosslow, he explains how. Welcome to Think Again, Michael. Thank you so much. A true pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm so glad to have you here. Um, we should start with a sort of a very broad overview. The ideas that you're teaching are from schools of thought that are called, you know, Confucianism, Taoism. Am I missing anything? Yeah, there are actually several. So several. There are those okay. two. There's Moism. There's legalism. Okay. So yeah, it's a period of debate when a huge number of different philosophical and religious movements were emerging. Okay, and I was wondering, out of all of those, and you know, some of the philosophers that you specifically mention in your book, Confucius, Mencius, Lao Tzu, Chuang Tzu, and the last one, which I'm sure I still can't pronounce properly, Shunzi. Is yes, that right? Okay. Very good. Shunzi. Fantastic. Out of their ideas, which you go into in the book, which ones do you find your American students react most strongly to, most negatively to, positively? 
Yes, I, I would say without any question, um, most of the students coming in, like many of Americans today, I think, would assume that the way to live a good, flourishing life is to look within, find oneself, find one's true self, and then be authentic and sincere to that true self. Right. And that means you can live your life on your own terms as is best for you. So what they find very, very counterintuitive is a body of text that will say, that's completely wrong. Um, it's, in fact, very, very dangerous. It restrains what you can become. And to, on the contrary, become a great person, we should do things like, for example, rituals, which would right. usually strike most contemporary students, and again, most Americans in general, I would think, as the last thing we want to do. So I've read a little bit in these subjects, and definitely in your book as well, you know, with Confucius, you talk a lot about ritual and you know structuring how in a Confucian system your life is structured around little rituals of everyday life. I guess my sense when I read Confucius was always as if there was some kind of underlying metaphysical structure there that like somehow these rituals like emerged whole cloth from the earth, you know, and he just picked them up rather than they're being artificial in any way. Am I, is that a, a misinterpretation? Or well, no, I, I think you're exactly right. And, and your way of putting it is very good, too, because it's, it is a metaphysics, but not in the sense that we tend to really think of. So we think of metaphysics as figuring out how everything really works. And the underlying metaphysics, I think, for Confucius, on the contrary, is that we as human beings just fall into these sort of patterns of responses. And okay. most of our lives are just endlessly playing out these patterns. And then what rituals are, are, are things that break us out of these patterns. So getting back to your question, I think the underlying metaphysics is it's kind of, it's a messy, fragmented world. And the connections that exist in the world are the connections we build by our activities. Usually, since we do so not very carefully, those connections are bad. Right. <laughs> They're dangerous connections. Right. They, they are harmful for ourselves and those around us, but they can be altered and changed. And then the world that's constructed isn't a world that was there and we're according with it. The idea is, no, we are constructing that world. So it's okay. a metaphysics in which we kind of are constructing the world we're living in and usually constructing it really, really badly, but we could construct it better. I always got the sense that, you know, particularly with like filial piety, respect to elders, that it was as if for Confucius, this was the proper order of the world, you know, that in some sense larger than Confucius. So, so it wasn't a purely artificial thing in the sense of him saying, here is how I shall construct things so that it will be good, but as if he were tapping into some deeper force of, of how things ought to be. Yes, and the sense would be that if you're looking at these patterns that human beings fall into, uh, hierarchies are one of the key ones. And so there are inherent hierarchies between, for example, parents and children that are by definition there. Right. And then a lot of the ritual is working out both the dangers of those hierarchies and trying to have each side play as good a role as possible within them. So right. to get to your example of filial piety, one of the intriguing ones we get from the early texts, the intriguing rituals I mean, is one in which imagine that there is a father, the head of the family, okay. and his father has passed away. Right. And imagine too that the father has a son. 
Now, you can imagine the hierarchies that would be setting in, sure. by definition, between the grandfather, father, and son, and particularly so with this moment that the father has died. So for all the tensions that existed between that father-son relationship, now they're unresolvable. The danger is those will just be thrown off to the next generation as well, from the father down to the next son. And these can continue for generations. So what do they do? They have a ritual in which they enter the ritual space and they do role reversals. So the son has to play the role of the grandfather, and he therefore is the father of his own father, and his father has to play the role of being the son to his own son. And that is how you learn proper filial hierarchies. So in other words, you're trying to force each one to see the world from the other perspective, knowing that in this hierarchy there's always a danger of one being too authoritarian, the other failing to see what the other is going through. And the role reversal forces each to see the other side of the hierarchy. Right. And I am hammering relentlessly at this, but doesn't that then presuppose that this right relationship is actually coming from some other place, like some natural thing other than Confucius's brain, you know? Yes. Uh, So nature, i.e. it's in alignment with nature, you know? Um, It it is, although only in the sense, but it's a crucial sense, that parents give birth to children and nurture and raise the children. Right. So the argument would be absolutely there are inherent natural hierarchies in the world, but then the sense would be if we simply live in that world, we're like animals. I like animals very much, (laughs) but at least a lot of the Confucians would would look down on animals and say animals simply live in these hierarchies and never alter them. When we think of Taoism, we think of uh, Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching, and we think of Chungsu, who is different, but also lumped in as Taoist. I tend to think of them as trying to be in accordance with nature, trying to be in accordance with some inscrutable but natural flow of things. You also cite Shunsu, who I hadn't read before, who seems the most radically divorced from being natural of any of them, yeah? Is that a correct assessment? Indeed. So yeah. Shunzu will, will literally say in so many words, it is we humans who give pattern to the larger world. And the sense is usually we do it badly, but his argument is when you look at the world around you, realize we've constructed this world. Even most of what we ascribe to nature is a human construct. I mean, sometimes literally we've constructed it, or at least we construct it in terms of how we understand it if we're looking at the larger cosmos. So it's a human construct. And then Schoen's next argument would be, if that's true, then why have we done such a bad job? <laughs> and how can we construct it better? <laughs> right. I mean, I guess I guess the danger of that, and maybe the... I mean, it's not necessarily a danger, but I think the reason maybe Westerners tend to run to trying to figure out what is natural and what is authentic is that if you're leaving it in human hands to construct the world, then you, you may end up... Who knows where you'll end up? You may end up with the Third Reich, you know? Yes. This is a nice system for living, yes. you know? But that just places a lot of trust in human hands, you know. Yeah, this is a huge concern for the philosophers because you're absolutely right. I mean, if you take the position that we humans really are constructing the worlds we live in, historically speaking, it's easy to show how bad a job we tend to do with this (laughs) over and over again, (laughs) indeed. And so one of their constant concerns is to say, we need these things, and rituals are one of them, in which we're constantly trying to break from the patterns we've fallen into. And one of the many goals of that is to help us realize that 
the world we're living in is not a natural world or a better world. It's a world we've constructed and by definition will have almost assuredly dangerous sets of patterns that we should right. always be conscious of and working on. So yes, once you assume that the world is constructed or argue the world is constructed, then you put a huge amount of weight on humans to therefore ask, have we done a good job? And if not, and it's usually not, how do we make it better? Right, right. It kind of ups the ante on what we could potentially do as humans. Scary, but also liberating. Yes, I think it's a beautiful way of putting it. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> on that note, let's get to the second part of the show where we have these surprise video clips and you and I are in the same boat. Uh, neither of us is the specialist necessarily. Let's see what they've got for us, okay? Wonderful. All right, so the first one, Frank Wilczek, a physicist, I believe, and he's talking about free will. Do we have free will? When you try to address the nature of things, you may find that asking different questions requires different ways of processing the underlying information structures. So that, for instance, in understanding the human mind, which is what we were talking about, to understand it physically requires one kind of processing, but to understand how a person works will require quite different ways of understanding and quite different ways of processing. So the age-old conflict between determinism and free will, for instance, is superficial. There are different ways of processing that could easily be, and apparently are, incompatible. If we're dealing with our own experience, we really need the concept of free will. But if we're dealing with the brain as a physical object, I think we can rely on the physical laws. So the idea that free will versus determinism are just different frameworks for looking at us and our lives. What do you think about that? Do you agree with that in the way that he expressed it? I actually don't. Okay. Um, the, a lot of these Chinese philosophers I'm dealing with would say, well, this is a way of portraying the world. So one way is to say there are sets of physical laws that continue, and therefore we as human beings, if we're not simply governed by these, if we're not determined creatures, we need something else. And they try to locate that in the free will, so we can decide for ourselves what to do. That doesn't seem to make any sense, and the argument would be, well, fine, but, <laughs> but we need free will. Now, right. suppose that's wrong. Suppose the way the world really operates is in terms of these ever-ending sets of relationships between things at every level, things not just objects that we see, but endless relationships. Everything is connected, and everything is endlessly altering by the way it's connected. That means what we describe as the physical world isn't really governed by laws, it's governed by sets of patterned responses. So okay. why does a plant move to the sun? It has a disposition to move toward the sun. It's not a law, think of it as the ways that different objects, given what they are, interrelate. Right. If that's true, we humans also interrelate. And the stuff that we interrelate with include our emotions, the energies of our emotions, as they would put it in China. Okay. And so things happen, it draws out responses from me. We too, like everything else, fall into patterns. But then how do we exercise what we like to call free will? They would say it's not through free will, it's by altering those responses. That what's distinctive about a human being, as opposed to a lot of other things in the world, is we can alter those responses. Right. So if something happens that draws out an energy of anger, we can alter that. Right. And you alter such that you're acting in ways that bring out other responses, that develops different relationships. Yeah. So in a sense, think of the world as relationships all the way down. Right. And the way we're doing what we call the exercise of free will 
actually involves working on these relationships, improving them, creating worlds within different relationships can flourish, right. but it's all relationships. It's simply how things relate and how things connect. I suppose a determinist would say various sets of experiences led you to the point and place in your life when you encountered these Chinese philosophers and then applied these practices to your life and that, you know, you can't escape the matrix. All of this was determined all the way down from the beginning. Yes. <laughs> and, and of course, the response these Chinese philosophers <laughs> would say is, well, let's not talk about them as laws, but let's talk about them as relationships. And then the matrix all the way down is indeed the world we're living in, but it's a world that we're intimately involved in creating. I guess I'm having a little trouble understanding the difference between physical laws and relationships. I mean, so my biology, my genetic code is such and such. It predisposes me to have a certain temperament. Uh, or maybe to, not. Or maybe not, <laughs> right, right. Well, but maybe I have certain temperamental tendencies. Maybe there was depression in my family, you right. know, this kind of Absolutely. thing. And I have certain experiences from outside, which include relationships and other things. All of these come together in this giant matrix of like actions and reactions. You could, say, I've got no control over any of that. I mean, that my deciding to make a change in the way that I react to things is predetermined either biologically or as a result of my past experiences in this giant net of relationships that I don't understand, right? Um, I mean, you could say that. You could, <laughs> but of course the key point um, is the one I jokingly interrupted when I made, which is, well, I may have a tendency to do X. And this may seem like a mundane point to begin with, but they would argue that that really is a key. So okay. imagine we're all, all humans I mean, just born messy creatures with these endless relationships that, that define us because we fall into these patterns. Right. Now, if that's the case, they would also say there's nothing inherent in us that will mean way I will always respond this way. It means I have dispositions and patterns to respond, but those can be developed in a different way. And most importantly, they could develop in a different way now. Right. <laughs> and, and simply by shifting little things, you begin to alter it. Now, to the argument, but isn't that determined in itself? <laughs> right, right. The key point they would make, though, is yes, but then that next step is you become more and more able to see the little things you're doing that are affecting others. You begin to get better at acting in ways that alter situations for the better, in which people with all their patterns can begin to slowly be brought together. Now, could you say, yeah, but sure, isn't that still all determined? <laughs> but the key would be at a certain level, you have to realize, yeah, but people are making changes in the world. Right. And it's not based upon an exercise of free will. It's based upon endlessly working on these relationships. And it's a very different vision of agency, but I think it's a very powerful vision of agency. Yeah, it's very different from our sort of Western independent actor Very vision, much you know. So. Yes. Yeah. Has it been your personal experience, and this goes yeah. to the claim you make at the beginning of your class and also the, the book, studying these philosophers and maybe incorporating some of the practices that they teach into your life, do you feel that you have significantly freer will as a result? 
Yes, ironically, I would say yes. And I say ironically because um, up through high school, if you had asked me any of these questions, I would have taken a radical individualistic stance. <laughs> and so all of my readings were, were the great individualist writings in recent Western history. And I thought that's the way to be a true individual, radically creative, breaking conventions. And that was my vision. And then I started reading these Chinese texts with a very different notion of agency. And they fundamentally altered me. I, I really realized that actually you can have these grand claims about the radical individual endlessly, but it has zero impact on most <laughs> of what you do on a daily basis. Right. And if you take these Chinese texts seriously, which I've done, that actually is what defines so much of who you are as a person. And that's how you can absolutely transform yourself as a human being. And yes, I think I'm a very, very different human being now that I take these things, seemingly mundane things, so seriously. Whereas looking back ironically in high school, when I thought I was this great radical individual, I was actually you know, just playing out the same old patterns that you probably could have traced back to age three or four, <laughs> if, 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 sure. one could, if I could remember that far. Sure. I noticed a theme throughout your book. You seem to have a beef with like current mindfulness practice, yeah? As somebody who has done some meditation and read in the various traditions, Mahayana, Theravada, whatever, I actually do believe that mindfulness practice when done in a non sort of faddish and concentrated way can be valuable. You seem to say, you say repeatedly throughout the book that it's about engagement in the world. It's yes. not about disconnecting from it, right? And my, I was reading that and my response was like, well, so is mindfulness, yes. like because you you understand your mind and then you engage in the world. It's Absolutely, and and I fully agree with you. So my concern is not the mindfulness techniques themselves, which I agree are actually aimed at something very comparable to what we're talking about here. It's the way they become domesticated in America, right? And sadly, the way they've often become domesticated is it's all about kind of embracing the self, and so you're training yourself to love yourself, um, love your emotions, not let your emotions get to you, accept that that little emotions we have are just part of who you are and you should embrace these. And ironically, even if that can make us perhaps superficially happier going through the day, the danger is it leads to a complacency because the ultimate goal is to embrace who I am and accept myself for who I am. Right. Whereas these practices, as you said, actually the explicit goal of the practices was to break the self. The vision was the self is this dangerous right. set of patterns and you do techniques of mindfulness, meditation right. to overcome the self. So I think the techniques are very powerful. It's the way they've unfortunately been at times domesticated in America. Another outlet for our collective narcissism. Indeed, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Ironically, <laughs> I think that's what they've become. <laughs> All right, so I think uh, let's, let's see what the second video is. Wonderful. Uh, where shall we go now? I have no idea. Ooh, Jesse Ventura. It's called Jesse Ventura being pro-life should mean more than being pro-birth. So we're going in a very different direction here. Great. All right. <laughs> we're gonna get to the surprise video in just a minute, but first let me tell you a little more about our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a streaming video learning service that can give you lifelong access to courses on any subject you can think of as often as you want, anytime and anywhere. When it comes to complex subjects, give me James Joyce or Virginia Woolf and I'm good to go. But String theory, quantum foam, alternate universes. At some point, I just want to attack something or someone. Enter Neil deGrasse Tyson's course, The Inexplicable Universe, on The Great Courses Plus. With his wry wit and down-to-earth style and just brilliant teaching, 
Neil made these inexplicable concepts totally explicable for me. Right now, Think Again listeners can stream this and hundreds of other eye-opening courses for a full month absolutely free. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think to sign up. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. And now back to our surprise clip and the rest of my conversation with Harvard Chinese philosophy expert Michael Puet. What angers me about the pro, and I don't call them pro-lifers anymore, I call them pro-birthers. They all want to outlaw abortion, and then all these kids come into the world, and yet the same people take away welfare, and they take away the very safety net that many of these unwanted children are going to need to survive. So if you're anti-abortion, then you should be pro-welfare. Not every child is born into your perfect leave-it-to-beaver family. People get pregnant. But my belief unequivocally is it's a woman's right to choose. I guess I want, I want to go into what may be sketchy territory and ask you, as someone who spent a lot of time studying the ideas and culture of the Far East, mm-hmm. whether a collectivist culture like China values individual life less. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm actually not sure that it's true, though. Um, And the reason I put it this way is if you look at what's going on in contemporary China, this is a debate in China itself. And in China, there's a strong sense, and you see this very widely put in the blogosphere, which is extremely active in China, that have we lost our values? Because we've spent much of the 20th century actively rejecting them. And there's a sense that have we lost them? I think part of what's intriguing here is that what it really means is you do focus, and this here they would very much agree with Jesse Ventura. <laughs> I mean, you really are focusing on issues of nourishing. And so the question would be much less, okay, once the life is there, it's there, and that's the end of our societal problem. The concern rather tends to be, what are the conditions that we are creating within which individuals are being raised? Right. And there the view is, you're really not talking about individuals very quickly because every individual being, what really defines them isn't some essence they're born with. What really defines them are, again, these patterns they fall into, most of which are defined by the conventions they're born into, the situation they're born into. And so you're endlessly focusing on that. So it is collectivist in the sense that you're concerned with how is the collective affecting the child, but you are really concerned with the child. In fact, in, in a weird way, the focus on you know, every individual is defined by these patterns and situations and conventions we're born into right. means in some ways you're incomparably more concerned mm. with how individuals are nurtured because so much of what we think individuals are, from that point of view, comes from that. So we tend to think, no, no, the individual just is an individual. They're born with something. And and our goal is to find that something as we live our lives. There the view is, no, you become something over time. And the question is, are we helping people become better people or not? Pre-communist China, how does that affect, you know, the attitude toward things like social welfare, you know, programs to to support people. Again, I'm playing the ignorant Westerner here. We're hearing all these horror stories about people being displaced en masse, you know, and the sort of 
disposable lives of the underclass. Yeah. Historically, though. This, again, is, is a constant debate in China. Where do we now seek our values since they've been so actively rejected? Mm -hmm. And a lot of these earlier ideas are indeed coming back. And so to get to your question as to what they entailed, yeah, one of the keys would be, well, we, meaning the adults in the society, are responsible for the young as they're raised. The leaders are responsible for the rest of society. And the question was always, how do we try to create institutions in which those in leadership positions, um, this is true at a family level, it's equally true at a government level, are responsible and hopefully actively working for the betterment of those around them. What this entailed was the creation of institutional meritocracies, where you tried to create right. as much social mobility as you could based upon education and hopefully working toward goodness rather than birth. The hope then was if you could create a government run by a meritocratic elite, that would be a much more responsive governance structure that hopefully would have people trying to work on behalf of the larger population. Right. So the hope was precisely to create institutionally a world that would be as much as possible based upon officials trying to help the larger society. And going back to your question about the contemporary period too, this is an active debate. If that's not currently going on in China, the question is, how do we end the corruption? How do we recreate something like a meritocratic form of governance? And what would that even mean in today's society? And some of that conversation, surprisingly, seems to be going on within the party itself. I mean, in, so. unless every person we're hearing about who gets brought down on corruption charges is just someone's political enemy and it doesn't reflect any broader thinking. But Yes, I, I, indeed. I, mean, I think one of the reasons that corruption has become such a huge topic, um, it, obviously because the, there's a huge amount of corruption, but also because if you take a vision of governance that's based upon meritocracy, corruption is one of the single most dangerous things that can set in. For a system of meritocracy, which is slowly becoming again an ideal in China, corruption would have to be stamped out. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've gone far from abortion, but I worry that our rugged individualism in the West has spawned, well, I know it has spawned libertarianism and basically attitudes that essentially leave people on their own to live or die with very little support. You know? Yes. And, and yeah, I mean, taking <laughs> these philosophers from China seriously, they would say such a system and such a way of thinking is always self-defeating because when we like to think, oh, we should just let rugged individuals be themselves, these philosophers would say, well, they'll never be themselves. I mean, what they are has been so defined by how they were raised and the patterns they've been born into. Right. And if you then say, okay, and we bear no responsibility for that, well, how can you not bear responsibility? We're directly responsible. We are the ones that created the world that the next generation is, is growing up in. We are responsible. We're responsible for them. We're responsible for the larger society. And it's a total rejection of our responsibility to simply say, it's not our problem. Every individual can decide for themselves what to do. And we have no reason to be concerned about larger societal issues. Yeah, no, in, we do. <laughs> and in a very blatant example in terms of human relationships, I live in New York City where we're recording this. And I think that the daily interactions with homeless people that most of us have yes. are deeply diminishing to each of us as human beings. I mean, you walk past, you have to, you're rushing through your commute. Someone comes to you and begs like, 
Do you give them money? Do you not? Do you look around at the other people around you who are not giving money, who are judging you for giving? Or do you in engage in that interaction? If you've done that, have you done anything? What have you actually done? You know, It's very diminishing, I think, of the human spirit. It, it is a perfect example. And I agree with you completely. It is amazing the degree to which we have reached a point where we've kind of de facto trained ourselves, to use these terms um, that the philosophers would use, we've trained ourselves to ignore the suffering around us. So we can literally, as you said, walk by a homeless person and it doesn't even affect us. And that's amazing. It takes training to be able to train ourselves to so not feel suffering when, when it's right there. And ironically, that's what we've trained ourselves to do. We have trained ourselves not to be concerned with those around us. Yeah, I would argue that it must have massive repercussions in all areas of our lives. Absolutely. I mean, if <laughs> we can do that, it will have equally huge repercussions on everything from grand social problems to just how we treat our loved ones when we walk in the door, when we get home. Absolutely. If we can cut ourselves off from suffering at that level, we're cutting ourselves off from suffering probably in most aspects of our lives. So, you know, Michael, we have gone so deep into the few subjects that we've discussed that we have so much material here that I think we're going to not do the third video. I would love to see what it is, <laughs> but the fact is we would end up losing tons of great material. We've, we've had a very deep and fascinating conversation. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. I, I, really, appreciate, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been great. It, it has been a tremendous pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're listening for the first time, I hope that you liked what you heard. If you're listening to us regularly, I'd love to hear from you on Twitter, especially. That's the easiest way to get in touch with us about what you're liking about the show. If you have a minute, go to iTunes, rate and review us, uh, or Google Play, or wherever you're listening. We're now on Google Play as well. I also wanted to let you know that we're going to be performing the show live. I'm really excited about this. This is May 21st, 5 p.m. It's a Saturday at NYC Podfest. It's going to be at the Cake Shop in New York for anyone who is in or near New York or wants to uh, get some folks together in a van and do a road trip, um, I would love to meet you. It is gonna be with Sarah Jones, who is a Tony Award-winning and Obie Award-winning actress, multiple character, creator, very funny. It's gonna be a great time, so I hope to see you there. Mm -hmm.